This is the Home Health Revealed podcast. Here's stories from real industry leaders discussing topics affecting the ever-changing home health industry. Welcome to Home Health Revealed podcast. I'm your host, Mike Greenlee, and I have my co-host with me, Hannah Vell. Hannah, what's up? Yes. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Well, I'm doing good. Good. You saying everybody just everybody out me? there? Yeah, I hope they're answering me in their car or wherever they're listening. Okay, because I'm the only one in the room. And you're good, right? Yeah, you're good. So, what'd you do this weekend? Um, I actually took a drive down to Rogers, Arkansas, and went to my niece's gymnastics competition, and it was fun. I love getting to do ant things. Well, I was thinking about you this weekend. Really? Yeah. That's nice. I, uh, I hope it was good. Well, you know how you say you uh, you're good at everything. <laughs> Yeah, I'll try anything, but sure, I'm good at everything. Okay, we'll go with the word try then. You'll try anything. Yeah. Well, I found the job for you. Okay, what is it? So uh, I get these random emails. They're they're just off the wall topics of news, like, like what's going on and what a company's doing. And I found one that said a company is looking for someone and they're going to pay them $6,000. We're actually $6,685.82. I don't know where the 82 cents came from. Okay. But, but they're going to pay someone to switch their canine's diet for two months to track the pet's poop smell. <laughs> okay. So I'm a poop smeller? Is that the official job title? Well, the title, company offers more than 6000 to smell dog poop for two months. And I thought of you because I was like, <laughs> hey, she says she's good at everything. Now, the only thing I haven't come to terms with is like, how do you wake up in the morning being excited about going to work? I mean, you know, it's going to be a crappy day. It's going to be a crappy day. It's got to be a crappy day. In the best way. Yeah. And then, you know, you need like a coffee notes tasting wheel for describing your dog poop smell. I, I could get behind this. How's a tobacco-y? It's more earthy today. Like, I, I could do it. Yeah. Sign me up. Where do I, I sign? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's in Britain. So you got to go to Britain. Oh, well, darn. I'm well, up for it. Well, you definitely need some coffee beans, you know, to smell after that. You know what I mean? Get to cleanse the palate. Yeah, I think they should pay more for that job. I can tell you that right now. I don't know. It seems like a steal. Well, I, hey, my husband would be proud. We've got a great guest today, and we're yes. going to talk a little bit about uh, authoring the plan of care and having the best plan of care out there in 2022. So who we got yes. today? So we have Anna Powers with us today. Anna has over a decade of experience working in home health. Anna graduated from Middle Tennessee State University with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Throughout her career, she has worked in a variety of positions ranging from direct patient care to director of operations and nursing over multiple home health agency branches, has an active RN license in the state of Tennessee, as well as COSC and BCHHC certifications. We are super excited to have her with us. Yeah. Hey, hey Anna, how, how are you doing today? I'm great, Michael. How are you? Well, I'm fantastic. Now, I do have a question here. So, Middle Tennessee State University, what's the mascot there? They call us the Big Blue. It, it used to be a little guy on a horse, and now it is more of like a Pegasus. And um, blue is our color, and we're we're just the Raiders. So, what is with everybody in changing mascots? Can we just take a minute? My Cleveland Indians are gone, but I'm sorry. Well, I think Anna. it was you the go political. Ahead. I believe it was the political correctness on that one. <laughs> so I know it's fine. It's fine. So they are the Raiders. Cleveland, they weren't that good anyway. Oh, don't hurt my heart. Maybe it doesn't matter. I'm a true fan. Maybe in the movie Major League, but that's about it. <laughs> 
So Anna, we, we could talk about all this all day, but I really do want to get some expertise from you. You have so much professional experience with Planet Cares. Tell us, why is this topic so important? Well, Hannah, it's really important because your plan of care is what everything is built on in the home health um, industry. Whenever a nurse goes in and sees a patient, she has to have a plan or a PP or an OTSP. All of the disciplines have to collaborate together and come up with that plan of care so that they can make an improvement in that patient's life. So we really want to get the information about what it takes to author a good plan of care. So I'm just going to jump right into some questions that we've put together and let you shoot. Is that good? That sounds good. Okay. So first off, can you help us understand what CMS allows in regards to collaboration to complete the OASIS assessment? It used to be that only one clinician was allowed to admit the patient and complete the OASIS solely based on their own assessment. But in January 2018, CMS expanded the One Clinician Convention. Uh, this was a really welcome change, and it took some of the pressure off of one clinician making all the decisions. And it started allowing for each assessing clinician to, to go in, see the patient, and then elicit information from the other patient caregivers and other healthcare personnel to assist them in completing any and all of the OASIS items within the comprehensive assessment document. So if the skilled nurse went out and did an initial assessment on Monday, then the PT could go in on Tuesday and the OT on Wednesday, and all three can collaborate for the OASIS. As long as this happens within the five-day window, this really helps because the patient's just usually getting home from the hospital or from a rehab, and they're still a little foggy. Um, they're trying to get their bearings and get back to normal. So the collaboration allows for a much truer picture of the patient's normal or new current level of function. So does that mean that, that anybody, anyone in, in the agency with information regarding the patient can help complete the OASIS now? Well, not exactly. Um, CMS states that healthcare personnel can include the patient's MD and pharmacist as well as other agency staff to assist in providing information. For example, the agency's clerical staff often complete demographic information, including things like the patient's name, date of birth, payer info, and et cetera, during the intake or the referral process. The clinician can call the patient's pharmacist to verify meds that are dispensed to make sure they've got the directions correct, the correct meds, and the correct dose. Um, obviously, the MD documentation or verbal collaboration will help in determining the diagnosis and condition that impact the patient's rehab potential and what the focus of care will be for the services that have been ordered. One thing that CMS is very clear about is that input regarding any OASIS M item that requires a patient assessment can only come from a clinician that has had direct in-person contact with the patient or some other means of semi-contact with the patient, such as monitoring of a healthcare device that a patient is utilizing. Uh, that would be something like maybe home dialysis, um, that's monitored by the Dallas Center or video streaming. Um, an MD can see a patient via remote, photographs, phone calls, etc. This could even be an LPN or a social worker or a home health aide that has laid eyes and hands on the patient or talked to them via phone or video. So as someone that reviews OASIS assessments for accuracy and, and assigns those diagnosis codes, are you considered 
a collaborating clinician? I have been in the past when I worked at an agency as a field RN, um, a clinical manager, and even a director, but I am no longer considered a collaborating clinician in my current position. I am a consultant. I do not assess the patient. I assess the documentation. I then take that documentation of all the true collaborating individuals and make recommendations on scoring of M items to improve accuracy and compliance. I am only looking at a paper patient, a quote-unquote paper patient, is, I guess is how I should say that. I've not been in the home to assess their environment, take their breath sounds or listen to their heart, palpate their abdomen or observe their wounds or determine their level of cognition or comprehension. I don't know if they have a cat that's going to sit on their wound and cause it to get infected or medicine bottles that are out of reach or wrinkles in the carpet that may pose a fall risk which is why it is extremely important that documentation is thorough and accurate so that it paints a clear picture of what I can't see on my own to afford me the ability to make accurate recommendations specific to the patient. Okay, so the differentiating factor that I hear you saying, I just I just want to reiterate for my own for my own understanding is you have to lay eyes and hands on the patient, eyes or hands on the patient as a clinician to be able to collaborate on the documentation? I have to be able to on those items that require assessment. Uh, for things like, you know, at one of the items will ask you what what facility they were just discharged from. That's something I can get from documentation. Okay. But when they actually ask me something, you know, when the OASIS asks something like, you know, is this patient at risk for falls? I can read all the documentation, and based on the documentation, I can say that they are at risk for fall. But like I said, I can't see if they, you know, I'm not in their environment, so I don't know if there's a cat or a dog to trip over or carpet. Um, you know, I can't tell if they can see, take their own medication because I don't know if they have to get up out of the chair to go get that and where, where they've got it stored at. So those are the kind of items where you have to have a clinician who's been in the home or can, you know, has watched that patient try to get up out of a chair and walk, you know, out of a chair or um, to just see what kind of pain they experience, the look on their face when they walk across the room. Are they in pain? Those are the things that I physically can't see when I'm looking at documentation on what we call the quote unquote paper patient. Okay. Okay. So, so if that's the case, then how can you be sure that you are giving the appropriate recommendations? Well, in, in all reality, I can't. Um, therefore, as part of the outsourcing consulting partner, I constantly remind clinicians that what I suggest is only a recommendation based on my knowledge of OASIS and coding guidelines combined with their documentation. Ultimately, the clinician owns the assessment, so they have the option to decide whether they take my recommendation or not. In most instances, they will, but they are there are times when maybe the documentation was not clear or sufficient, so my recommendation was not applicable, and that's okay. I do not, I don't, I don't ever take it personal <laughs> when someone disagrees with me because I know that the OAS is a legal binding document. So at the end of the day, the assessing clinician takes the complete responsibility for what's on it. It's, it's my job to enhance theirs, not tell them they didn't do the right, the assessment right. It's, it's the absolute responsibility of the assessing clinician to consider available input from other sources and select the appropriate OASIS items or the responses within the appropriate time frame and consistent with the data 
collection guidelines. For clinicians, usually gathering the information is the easier part of all of it. The harder part is that the timeframes are confusing and the data collection guidance often reads like a foreign language. So my job is basically to help interpret, make sense of the confusing stuff and help the clinician apply it. So you mentioned that if some of the information isn't uh, suffice enough, do you guys have some collaboration back and forth so that, you know, within your recommendations, you're, you're getting as, as good as a picture as you can, again, on the, the paper patient as you, you kind of labeled it? Well, a lot of times we try to offer that, you know, that, that advice in a comment that we make or we'll make a suggestion, you know, you need to go back and refer to this. But if we get to a point when I'm reviewing a chart where I need to say, hold up, I don't really know what's going on here. I'll have to put that chart to the side reach out to an agency and say, hey, help me understand, you know, where was this wound located? What what did it look like? Or, you know, get some information that, again, I can't see on a paper patient. Because the, the OASIS is actually a legal document, correct? Yes, it absolutely is. And a lot of people don't realize that um, when the clinician signs off on the assessment, it serves as their attestation that, to the best of their knowledge, the document including the OASIS responses, reflects the patient's status as assessed, documented, and or supported in the patient's clinical record. The assessing clinician has the final say as to what goes on that document. Not me, not the MD, not their coworker, not even the person who signs their paycheck. It's theirs. They own it. So nothing would be more mortifying as a clinician than being called into a deposition and being asked a question only to respond, I don't know, someone changed my answers. That probably would not go over very well if you were in a legal situation, especially in a courtroom. It is imperative that clinicians review any recommendation and approve any modifications of the OASIS. There are some steps that are even taken in an effort to protect clinicians. Agencies must follow these practices in accordance with the provider policies and procedures related to staff communication and patient information to track and or identify those staff members contributing to the patient assessment information. Sadly, agency protection only goes so far. Um, at the end of the day, the clinician really needs to know the importance of owning and protecting their documentation. Not doing so can really put someone in a bad spot and put their livelihood at risk. So do the same rules rules apply to the plan of care? I mean, that not that signed by the MD? It is, um, sort of. The OASIS is documentation of assessment that was performed, and it outlines the patient's personal info, prior history, current physical and cognitive condition, and at what level they safely function. The plan of care is an outline of what each clinician plans to perform and the goals they plan to help the patient meet by implementing specific interventions. Each discipline has their own set of orders and goals. It's kind of a blueprint. Each discipline assesses where the person is, what their current abilities are, and what their barriers are, and what support they have. Then they combine all that knowledge to come up with a plan in hopes of improving their situation. They do this by sharing knowledge and techniques to improve patient and caregiver knowledge and quality of life or promote healing. A plan of care should be patient-specific, very patient-specific, actually. Let me emphasize that. It must be specific. And every intervention that will be implemented must be documented or it can't or didn't happen. What you say you plan to do, you must do. Nothing less, nothing more. The MD signature is confirmation that the MD agrees with what you plan to do and transforms the plan of care into a legal 
in the order. You, you oh. probably don't know this, but you know, you said specific. When I was a kid, I used to always call it Pacific. My mom would be like, it's specific, Michael, <laughs> not Pacific. And I was like, I, it sounds specific to me. Right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's my, my like spaghetti, but I was like, you know, it's specific, Pacific. That SP it's consonant tricky. sound is, yeah. is tough for kids. I think people should go with Pacific. I like it too. Right. That ocean. I think it's yeah. easier and faster to say, right? We live in a fast paced world. So I'm, I'm Pacific about it. Well, it needs to be very <laughs> specific. Whatever. Is there a. Either way. <laughs> yes. So when it comes to Planicare, is there a template? that can be used and then customized so we can decide what's on the plan of care, what has to be on there? Well, there is a template. Most agencies industry-wide use the 485 template because it's the most familiar and it has a spot for all the necessary components of plan of care. You can customize it. It does have to all be there, though. That's the biggest thing. And in all honesty, as long as you have all the necessary components, there is no one way to offer a plan of care because it is patient Pacific or specific, whichever one you want to say, Michael. Pacific. Um, two, okay. Two clinicians may see the same patient and if asked to develop a plan of care, come up with two very different documents with many similarities. There are a few rule of thumbs that you have to stick to that will pretty much work in a clinician's favor every time they write a plan of care. Number one, make sure you know what the COPs, the conditions of participation, say regarding what must be on the plan of care. Do not, number two, do not get in the habit of creating cookie cutter plan of care. I see this all the time. Really, really bad idea because the POC must be, again, patient specific. If all the plan of cares in your agency say the exact same thing, it will throw up red flags to all the wrong people. And these are the people you do not want to throw up red flags to. Number three, if a POC is longer than two to two and a half pages long, when you print it out, it's probably way too long and you need to cut it down a little bit. Now, do you see a lot of cookie cutter POCs out there? I do, actually. I see quite a few. You call them cookie cutter or copy paste. And a lot of agencies actually have a zero tolerance for copy and pasting. So you can't use um, the same terminology patient after patient after patient. It makes it where you have to be specific. First of all, where do you confirm what needs to be on the plan of care? Um, well, you can read the conditions of participation, uh, which, agent, which each agency is required to keep on hand, but they contain a lot of legal terminology. Um, they're a little bit difficult to read. It's kind of like reading a, um, you know, a legal document or a court order. Mm, so outside reading. what I recommend, it's tough reading. There's a lot of therefores and, you know, those things. I recommend going to, CN, going to the CMS website and reviewing the interpretive guidelines. Um, you can also visit the Home Health Resources on NOC, which is the National Association of Home Care and Hospice website. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a really good breakdown of it where it's a lot easier to read, kind of like the cliff notes of the COP. Uh, or in worst case scenario, you can just Google Home Health COP, COPs or ask Alexa to read them to you. The Google. I'd say the Google's everywhere. I like yeah, asking Alexa to read them to me. Alexa, right, if you read can't me the COPs. She'd be like, what? If you can't fall asleep, ask Alexa to read you the COPs. Exactly. Alexa, at my house would be like, I'm sorry. I'm still busy playing the Encanto soundtrack and cannot interrupt that. 
I don't know what's wrong with her. She's actually she's actually filling out the job application for that the job. <laughs> yeah. So she's a little distracted sure. right now. Sure. Oh, that one's up there. Oh. So now on, on these POCs, planet cares. Yeah, I mean, can they be too long? Can they be too short? I mean, yeah, she said you don't want them more than like two and a half pages. Well, who's going to write two and a half pages? That's, that seems like a lot. You don't want it to be too long because think about it. If you think about it from just a rational perspective, I mean, each healthcare episode is only 60 days long. And a typical patient is only seen a few times a week through the 60-day period. You really want to commit to carrying out 50 MB orders and helping that patient meet 50 related goals or more, uh, not to mention teaching on 30 different meds, medications, the indications, the side effects. Um, and you have to do all that in like eight to 10 visits over a course of 60 days. Um, that's a lot to commit yourself to if, if you want to have a life outside of work and you don't want to pretty much camp out at the patient's house. So um, when you're writing your plan of care, you want to do it with a mindset of setting the patient yourself up for success. Most clinicians tend to throw everything on the POC that they can think of at the start of care and any subsequent revision of the plan of care. My rule of thumb has always been to determine your focus and the patient's most acute need and come up with five short-term goals and five long-term goals that address those issues. Um, if you meet those in the first few weeks, that's great. Then you can reach out to the MD and get a verbal order to address the next issue if the patient has more needs. This is much better than getting to the end of the 60-day episode and having 15 to 20 interventions that you never got around to addressing, which once the order is signed by the MD equates to not following an MD order or non-compliance is a word people don't like to hear. But that's really what happens if you've wrote all those orders and you never get to them. Um, if you approach the POC from this perspective, you not only set the patient up to show improvement, but it gives the clinician the opportunity to display, to display their worth in improving the lives of their patient. They get to kind of shine a little bit and say, we did all that. Um, in addition, it makes it so much easier to justify the decision to discharge or recertify a patient at the end of the care episode. So, so is it possible that when you're building the, the POC that you could actually have too many visits on there? Too many visits? Yeah. Or too many? Well, yeah. I mean, but you always want to look at your patient. Um, that's why they've always suggested, my thought was that it was always suggested you put that plan of care, a copy of it in the home. But I always recommend that as a clinician, you carry a copy of it with you when you're going out to see the patient. That way you can kind of look through it and see what you haven't addressed and tick off what you need to. And it really depends on the patient. If, you know, some patients will advance quicker and won't need as many visits and you can meet those goals quicker than what you had anticipated. And then some of them you have to call the doctor and say, hey, uh, we didn't meet this one yet. I need a little bit more time. Can you give me some more visits? The number of interventions that are actually attainable, right? And less is more. So we would rather add some on than get to the end and have not complied with the doctor's orders. So when yeah. you're the clinician, how do you actually determine which interventions the patient needs to have on their plan of care? Well, more often than not, the physician refers a patient with a preliminary plan of care that can't really be completed until after an evaluation visit is made by the admitting clinician. Um, Unfortunately, often this preliminary plan of care is a simple signed or verbal order 
to eval and treat. We see it quite a bit. We see a lot of just, you know, a prescription sent over, PTOT, please eval and treat. And you're just like, okay, so we don't have a plan. I need to go out and create one. So then the plan of care becomes yet another collaboration of clinicians, just like the OASIS. So you've got the skilled nurse calling the plant, you know, the PT going, okay, what are we doing here? And they're going, oh, we're going to do this. Okay, that sounds good. Um, the assessing clinician gets the plan of care started. And then the assess, by assessing the patient, they then consult with the MD to approve additions or modifications to the original plan. So that eval and treat is now two pages of a 485 and the MD is like, yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. And so, um, the same thing will happen. Each additional discipline will do the same, develop a, a, a discipline specific plan of care because nursing and PT are going to do two different things. Um, if the evaluations occurred within the time frame of the OASIS and the orders and goals for that discipline will be added to the plan of care before it's signed by the MD. Um, if the evaluation occurred outside the time frame, then a separate verbal order will be written and sent over to the MD to sign. Although additional persons can offer input to maintain compliance and make suggestions of what to add to the plan of care, ultimately, just like with the OASIS, the plan of care is a collaborative effort between the clinicians and the MD, and that's who owns it at the end of the day, is them. Okay, the MD. Well, no, the clinicians. Okay, okay. I'm, it, it's like writing a book. I've, I've sat down, I've went to see this patient. Now I'm going to say what I think they can do based on what I've seen and when I think they can attain those goals. So I'm the only person that's been out there and laid eyes on them. I'm the only person who can write that. I, I love using that term, author it. I think that's really yeah. a good description of it. So thanks for yeah. that. We'll use it in the title of this. So, and a quick question. So, you know, hey, there, we know there's a staffing shortage out there in today's market, right? Yes. We, we hear about it all the time. So if I'm an agency and I just, you know, hire a couple of clinicians um, and I'm not, not sure how good they are at the plan of care, how, how long does it normally take a clinician to be really good at writing a plan of care? Well, I'll be honest, um, and maybe I'm a little bit biased, but a lot of times nurses are a little bit quicker at picking it up just because in nursing school, it's probably the most hated thing that we have to do is plan of care. We write them and they're pages and pages long just so we can learn how to do those. So nurses probably pick those up a little bit quicker. Um, I would say as long as you can provide them the structure and the components within maybe a week or two, um, then they can probably pick that up. Therapy may take a little bit longer um, because they're more black and white a lot of times than nurses on that. They, they want bullet points. They don't elaborate a lot. So, um, but any clinician who's ever had to go in and assess a patient, even at a hospital and say, okay, what am I going to do? Should be able to write a plan of care. So I would think it, it takes a while to get a plan of care perfected two to three weeks. I think the bigger struggle is with OASIS, but plan of care should be a pretty easy pickup. So the term collaboration is coming up, coming up, seems to be a common theme with OASIS and with plan of care. So how does that work in relation to people like you that do the Planicare reviews as an outsourcing service? Well, the big difference between the OASIS and the Planicare is that the OASIS is documentation that involves a recommendation or approval relationship that I am part of. 
The plan of care, however, is an order given to the clinician by the MD, and I'm not part of that at all. They, um, I can review the plan of care and make suggestions or recommendations that promote compliance and best practice, but I'm not an assessing or collaborating clinician. As such, any recommendation that I make are subject to very specific guidelines that state that any additions or modifications to the plan of care must be approved by the physician. For me to do anything beyond making a recommendation for a clinician to present to the MD for approval would be the equivalent of me writing an order that I did not take. In a meeting that I recently attended with a few representatives from NOC, they were able to confirm my concern that by modifying, adding to, or approving a plan of care or an MD order, I would be elevating myself to clinician status versus consultant or slash reviewer and making clinical decisions without actually assessing the patient, which is a big no-no, including but not limited to being licensed in the state where the agency is located, meeting all that state's requirements and meeting all the training and evaluation requirements of other clinicians of that agency, including the agency maintaining a personnel file that documents documents I have all the same training as the other practicing clinicians. That would be pretty big and substantial. So I'd have to be pretty much employed by the agency rather than be contracted as a consultant by the agency. This comes at great risk personally and to the agency. So it's best to only offer recommendations that the clinician can then seek approval from the MD to avoid jeopardizing compliance or raising an ethical concern. The way we have kind of discussed this is when you're out assessing that patient, you're the clinician, you have that clinician hat on. It is very valuable to have a set of eyes who has not actually assessed them because you are quickly able to see any gaps in documentation because you are looking for those items to be able to put together the picture of the patient without having seen the patient. Do you feel like that's a fair way to think through that's it? That's a very fair way and a really good a good way to explain it is, is I'm looking for things that are going to make them compliant. I'm looking for the things that need to be on the plan of care. I'm seeing the inconsistencies. I'm seeing where over here they may have put that they had a wound on the right leg. And then over here, they put it was on the left leg. So miraculously, this wound moved from this leg to this leg throughout the documentation. And I'm having to say, which one is it? So, okay, based on all of this information that you've shared with us, and I know we have a variety of people that listen to these podcasts, but many of them are agency owners. And a lot of them just want to know, okay, so, so what does this mean for me? What am I doing with this information? And there are also a variety of uh, processes that take place within these agencies. Some of them do their reviews in-house, some of them outsource, and you know whatever works best for that agency, we support that. Um, we just want to be a help to let them know, hey, how do you know that you really are in compliance, that you really are doing the plan of care, the OASIS review, the best way you can do it in 2022? So what are the next steps for an agency? Or how do you know that you are doing this correctly? Well, I have been in the position before as the director of an agency. So I know what that feels like to, to be worried that you're not meeting all the rules. Um, I would recommend for one thing, each, each director of an agency should know chapter seven of their policies and procedures book. They should know that very well, knowing what, you know, which clinicians can go out, what the timelines are, 
what needs to be on that plan of care. And as I said, you can always refer to um, NOC or one of your other, you know, one of your one of your websites that will break it down. Yeah, the state associations are a great place. I know we've yeah, talked about Yeah, break too, it down so, yeah. where it's very understandable. Go over this. Educate your clinicians. The key with the plan of care is compliance, compliance, compliance. It's not content. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be flowery. It doesn't need a lot of language. A lot of people want to throw stuff in there um, that's very specific. You want the exactly what you need and not a lot more is, is, I guess, the best way to put it. Because the more flowery you make it and the more that you add to it with agent-specific notes that you want on there or little little comments, those things don't help. They they just add to it. They add a little bit more work. And what you really want to do is just make sure what you need is on there. It's direct and to the point, And that is patient-specific. So specific and compliant. Those are your keys to it. Well, Anna, we appreciate so much uh, of your time today and, and answering the questions that we have. We know there's there's so much going on in today's time within an agency. They're they're running a lot of different directions, and and the importance of the the oasis and the plan of care uh, you've said very well. And I know as an owner myself, when I uh, I'm an Audible guy, you know, I don't really read much. Audible is really good for me, you know, so I can just listen every time I. I I, I read something or I listen to a podcast just as this one, it, it always brings up questions in my mind. It makes me wonder, Hey, are we doing this stuff? And, and so my recommendation is at, at, for those that, that listen, it, it might not be a bad idea to just check it out a little bit, do some spot checks here and there to see, Hey, is, is the Oasis is the plan of care? Is that where we want it to be? Is it good? Um, you know, and if there's some room for improvement, begin to, to create that plan. Like I said, there's a lot of companies out there like, like ours that would be more than happy to look at some of those. And, and so that's always an option too, just to get a, a third party opinion, but uh, definitely great information. Thank you for all your knowledge and spending time with us this morning. Um, you guys need to work on your mascot. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm still confused on what your mascot is, but it's either a bolt or a blue guy or a horse. I'm not really sure what it is, but we'll get that figured out. We'll write a note to the dean to say, hey, we got to work on this thing. But anyhow, um, we appreciate you so much for yes. joining us today. And for all those listening, thank you very much. We'll be back next month with another hot topic. Take care.